0: Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends, and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom and KJ. Great to have you back, as always. Additionally, joining us as our guest quizzer for this episode is... Doug. Thanks for joining us today, Doug. You may remember Doug from our inaugural episode, Raiders of the Lost Ark. What you may not know is Doug participated as a co-host in recording our unaired nine-episode alpha season when we were fine-tuning the format of Talking Pictures Trivia. Doug was also instrumental in setting up our web hosting. Needless to say, Doug also conveniently likes movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, which consists of two rounds of three questions to determine who will earn today's trivia crown. Then once the fierce competition is over, we follow up with our famous movie rant, where anything goes. Today's movie was suggested to us by Doug. We will be jumping into the drama sci-fi mystery, Solaris by Andrei Tarkovsky, who is also known for Stalker and the Sacrifice. Since this was made in 1972, Other big movies back in the USSR include Privlov's Millions, Farewell to St. Petersburg, and the USSR state prize-winning Winnie the Pooh and A Busy Day. In the US, we would have been watching The Godfather and Deliverance. Now, Doug, tell us a little bit about the plot of this movie and why you thought this one would be a good one to uh, bring to us today. So in the future,
1: a psychologist named Chris Kelvin travels to a space station above a planet called Solaris Strange reports are coming from the crew, and he's sent to determine if the mission should continue. When he arrives, he finds that his friend Givarian committed suicide, and the two remaining crew members, Snout and Sartorius, are behaving strangely. His dead wife, Hari, mysteriously appears, among other guests, in quotes. Uh, They figure out how to destroy the guests and discuss whether or not to go home. At the end, it looks like Kelvin's back home, but he's really on an island on Solaris. So I first watched it in college. This would have been fall of 2003. I I looked this up because I found my old transcript. So I was taking a class on Dostoevsky, and the professor mentioned that there was like a Tarkovsky film series that was going on at the theater on campus. And I also watched Andrei Rublev around the same time. So if you thought this was long, uh, Andre Rublev is a beast. So that was actually after the 2002 version by Steven Soderbergh, but I did not see that one until I think much later. So I hadn't seen it in a long time. I hadn't rewatched it since then. I thought it would be interesting to discuss and uh, it wouldn't come up in casual conversation because uh, I think most people have not seen this uh, 1972 Soviet movie. And you, Tom?
2: Yeah, I have a long history with this movie. I, I saw it in high school, this, this, oh, maybe even before high school. So, like, I don't know, like 1999, I'm, I might have seen this movie. Um, I've also saw it in when I was in a, a graduate seminar. We did we covered this film, the book, and then the Soderbergh. Adaptation in a, a collection of classes on film adaptation so i'm I've read the book twice i've seen both films I think more than once um, I've watched a few other uh, Tarkovsky films in prep for this so i i yeah i i uh, know this material somewhat well um, and my thoughts on it are. That with this with this recent viewing, what viewing for it for this podcast, is that I think the film is probably a lot simpler than the than it lets on, or that the source material, the book especially, contributes to it. And I think if you think of this film and a lot of Tarkovsky's other film, I'm specifically thinking of stalker. Uh, if you think of them as very much kind of simple devotionals, I, I think it, Unpacks the movie a little bit. Unpacks is the wrong term. What should I say? It, um, it makes the movie more
3: present or more comprehensible. How about you, KJ? So I had not heard of Solaris before it was suggested for talking pictures trivia. Um, one of the things Tom had said about it before I watched it was that it's very meditative. And I'm glad Tom said that because if you go into this movie thinking you're watching a painting, it'll feel much more fast paced and uh, exciting than it is, and and it, it doesn't need to be fast paced or exciting. It really was a pleasant two hours and forty minutes of the camera just sometimes lingering on things for 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 no other reason than to linger. Um, and then I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I don't know if it's at the top of my list to watch again. I don't know if I'd want to watch it with a group, but I think it would be great to have on in the background if you're working on something else um, because of its still nature. Yeah. So I, I, I enjoyed it. I'm really glad we watched it. Um, and, and it was a fun sci-fi. It did do some things that sci-fi movies do. Well, brings up either questions or surprises or, you know, what would I do in that case? Um, yeah. I
0: enjoyed it. How about you, Nick? I did not have that same um, understanding going into this movie. And I, I think what happens is when you watch this movie, you have to have a proper mindset and I don't want to put this movie in a poor light just because I had a challenging week to squeeze this movie into because I think that may have changed my opinion. Whereas if I had just the luxury of a free few hours to just enjoy this piece of art, uh, I think I probably would have enjoyed it more. So I, I just want to make sure I don't bias it. That being said unlike KJ saying that he had the experience for the multitude of hours, I believe it was a two hours and 47 minute runtime. I'd say there was about an hour to an hour and a half that I found to be pleasant and more enjoyable. This is specifically when we're in space and we're starting to understand uh, a little bit about the, as Doug was saying, guests, and especially his deceased wife who is now appearing I did find that part interesting as we unraveled that bit of a mystery. And I was mentioning to my co-host before we started this episode that I was concerned a little bit because I'm supposed to be answering questions. And this is another one of those episodes where I think I have more questions, which I do think leads to uh, possibly an interesting dialogue that Doug was saying it might be fun to discuss uh, with people who have all seen the source material. So again, As I was approaching this movie, I did not have that proper understanding of what I was about to undertake, (laughs) uh, which did bias a little bit of my view. I'm still glad I watched it, and I think I may enjoy the conversation about the movie more than I watched the view. This is the, an interesting episode where we have our guest be the quizzer. Uh, Doug has, as I said in the introduction, has plenty of experience behind the scenes with uh, the Talking Pictures Trivia format. So I'm going to turn it over to Doug. But before I do that, we always ask one critical question when someone joins us on Talking Pictures Trivia. What would be the ideal snack that they would recommend uh, to imbibe or eat during a viewing of this movie? Doug, what do you think?
1: So this is not something that I actually eat, but (laughs) uh, based on the movie, I think I would go with spam, (laughs) a can of spam. Uh, So there wasn't anything really good to gather from the movie. I think they barely eat anything except for fruit. Uh, And I I rewatched the remake as well, and there wasn't anything interesting there. But... In the book, they mention a can of meat concentrate. So
0: I'll take that to mean spam. We're going to fry it up or what are we doing with it?
1: I, th- I think they just eat it straight out of the can.
0: <laughs> oh, gross. <laughs> so, okay, we just lost spam uh, sponsor. <laughs> so, okay, uh, that is definitely an interesting choice. Uh, I'll leave it to you on that one. But what I will do is now turn it over to you to start off the movie quiz. It's time for Movie Quiz. The first set of
1: questions, I came up with some, some topics uh, based on Celebrity Jeopardy, uh, the SNL version. In round one, each of these questions will be worth one point. Here are your choices. Therapists, opposites, and things you shouldn't put in your mouth. Tom, you're first.
2: Let's do things not to put in your mouth.
1: It's time for question one. How did the new Hari die? Locked in. Locked in.
3: Locked in.
0: So, Tom, you're first.
2: She drank liquid nitrogen.
0: My answer is she drank liquid oxygen.
3: My answer is they sent brain waves to the planet.
1: Okay. Nick is the only one who got this correct. It is liquid oxygen. Did she die? I was
3: my understanding was she tried to die, but she never actually ceased to live at
0: that point. Well she died, but then she resurrected. <laughs> they used the, they, word resurrected. Okay, they use the word resurrected. They used
3: the word resurrected and yeah, yeah, I'm on board. I'm on board.
1: Yeah, I believe she did die and came back. You know, her heart stopped and bodily function stopped.
0: There's a scene where uh I believe it was Snout specifically says something to the effect that I can't handle the resurrections or something to that degree.
3: Okay. He does say that. Yeah, I didn't I didn't take that as a literal resurrection. She
0: is but... coming back to life like she died. She she did. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. I,
2: I think the implication is that you can kill them and they just keep coming back. Um this is the uh they in the book they refer to it as, or Lem refers to, Lem is the author of the book, refers to it as a uh, cruel wonders. Is that right, Doug? Uh,
1: I don't remember
2: he called, the exact Yeah, phrase. I think he calls it the age of cruel wonders. So yeah, it's no matter what you do, um, because he kills an earlier version, or almost kills an
3: earlier version of her too. He puts her in a rocket and sends her off. Well, in that case, he puts her in the rocket, sends her off, and then we don't see what happens. It's assumed that because they're kind of hologram slash hallucinations slash exist in our mind, once they get far enough out, they cease to exist. I think that uh, Tarkovsky does a great deal of
2: work making sure to show us that they're flesh and blood. They are human. They're not just an, a hallucination. Um, and he does that with the the shawl she wears, that... You know, that thing that covers her that also later covers his mother. and it, That's a hallucination. We do actually see hallucinations in this. Um, but there's a, there's a lot of work that goes into physicalizing Hari and making, making us know she is a physical thing. In terms of how far away she has to get from them before she ceases to be real, that does seem to be a, a, an arc of development in her. At first, she needs to be near him and then later we learned she doesn't. He, he can actually be away from her and she's she's fine. And there's a a, a famous sequence where she's um, reflecting on something, let's say, in order to avoid yeah. giving an answer, reflecting on something. And this mm-hmm. kind of reveals that at this point, she's developed past the point of needing to be within eyeshot of Chris.
0: I believe that that was the most, that character, Harry, Harry, I'm not sure how to, pronounce it actually that was the most interesting part of this whole movie to me is trying to figure out just like we said is she hallucination is she real is she not we we start to understand that the other people can see her too and i i find it i always i found it interesting that they're just like oh yep it's another one of them they've gotten past the freak out stage where he's like this is my deceased wife is here they're like yeah she's here and and It only gets worse as they become more human. That's a term that is also used, that as they go through this process, these beings, Hari, is realizing she is actually not the original and she's becoming more of her own entity, which that's, I don't want to, we'll talk about it more probably, but that was my favorite part of this movie is understanding that little bit of mystery, how she relates to everything.
2: Yeah, and the, the idea of getting past freak out is an interesting way to express it. Because it seems like everyone there is in a prolonged state of trauma. That that seems to be part of the the problem of the the creations is that um, that it extends a traumatic situation indefinitely, right? So this is something you know trauma is something that you people live with and manifests in certain ways. Here it is inter- uh, eternally manifested for these people.
1: Okay, so question two, KJ, it's your choice. The two remaining topics are therapists and opposites. I'll
3: go opposites. It's time for question
1: two. What are the guests made of? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. (laughs) That doesn't sound very enthusiastic. (laughs) All right. We will go with KJ first. The guests are made of neutrinos,
3: which I think are a construct of the individual's minds. So neutrinos are real or, well, as far as we can detect them. But I, the way I interpret it is they organized based on something in somebody's mind, right? So the neutrinos were being kind of controlled by the planet to create the wife, to create the other guests that we saw. Neutrinos.
2: I also said neutrinos or locked in neutrinos. And yeah, you know, it seems to be they're able to, probe a very deep down, they or it, the planet, the ocean, is able to probe a very deep down memory, and then reconstruct the guest using neutrinos.
0: Okay, I did not lock that in, but as soon as KJ said it, I remembered that exactly. I had it reversed. I remembered that there was, because we watched this, of course, with subtitles, uh, because it's in Russian. There was a very long word, and I think that actually is what the lake was made of, or the water, and it was something like ethyl or something, but I just realized that is not what we're talking about. So it's neutrinos, I deserve no points. Good luck, congratulations, guys.
1: Uh, I think it's a consensus. It is neutrinos, yes, uh, as opposed to atoms, which is what we humans are made of.
0: Does anyone remember the word that I just made up that had to do with what the lake was made of it had something to do they're like we'll send this back into that lake or the water
1: but uh, the, yeah. encephalogram? the
2: encephalogram encephalogram yeah. yeah the encephalogram uh, which is just a kind of a reading of the mind of an individual in this case kelvin but yeah that that was Got what it. they're sending in yeah
0: yeah it's not a substance it's not what mm-hmm. it was made of it's what they were sending into the ocean yeah. okay mm-hmm
2: yeah, it was. It's actually kind of like data, right? It's data of the the mind of an individual, yep. um, which is what eventually ex- seems to exterminate the the guests. Um, well, the way I think
3: they described it is: now that the ocean has a better understanding of us, the ocean understands why this is torture for us. Therefore, it stopped the. That's the way I, I had read it.
2: Yeah, I I, I think that. Reaching definite conclusions about how the ocean works is is a is a trap not to fall into. Mm. There's certain things we know the ocean does, um, and they're not hallucinatory, right? This is I think that that's really clear. Then they're not hallucinations. But in terms of um, what the the ocean is or why it does things, I, you know, good luck. I don't think you're going to come to a conclusion.
1: Yeah, the impression I got from from the movie, um, as well as the other movie in the book, is that there, there's not a there's not a purpose. It just does things, and it's not necessarily uh, good or bad. It doesn't have intentions. It's you know it's learning. There's uh, the, I, I think the movie, well, the first movie, you know, goes into it a little bit. Uh, the experimentation that they do, and they're just they're trying to learn, you know, what this thing is because it's not just uh, a planet. Um, the, the book goes into the experimentation a lot more and different things that they, they find out about it, but it's, it's still, it's, it's a mystery. You know, there's, uh, in, in the book, they actually talk about how it was discovered something like 100 years earlier, and they've been s- studying it for a long time, and something like 700 some odd people have died exploring it. Whereas in the movie, both movies, you know, you, you get the sense that only a couple of people have died and that's what prompted this whole mission.
2: Yeah, the, the book has a real distinct purpose away from the movie. Um, and, and it's a theme, Stanislav Lem Lem is the author, a, a Polish-Soviet author. And a lot of his work is about the the limits of human rationality. And so you don't the idea is you don't really ever know what the ocean is. And um, in, in the book it's, you cover the entire history of what's called solaristics, which is the study of Solaris. And it traces like the history of philosophy very neatly in the sense of philosophy is trying to give us maybe our purpose or why we're here. And it sort of just dissolves into a collection of subfields and nobody knows why humans are here. and. The, the history of solaristics, the study of it, is, is like that. Um, and while it was initially an, an exciting discovery, by the time that Kelvin comes to the space station in the book anyway, it's sort of a scientific backwater. People, are, um, people have determined we don't know what this is. We don't know how to communicate with it. And a lot of the point of the book is whatever... Rationality, the the ocean is working with. It's just a it's a glass darkly. We can't see it. We don't know what it is. The the movie seems to have a different view or a different way of approaching that problem or that conflict, um, which is far more invested in these kind of human relationships and how they affect people.
0: I did think it was interesting, though, that that the ocean after being projected or the the different um i forget the word you guys just used the the thoughts of kelvin that it created all of a sudden started creating these islands out of nowhere and it was the island was actually from his memories and what he was familiar with and that is how the movie ends so it's it's interesting to see how it even changed the structure of that planet based on that transmission so I, i i did find that pretty fascinating So going back to the neutrinos, I was actually surprised to hear that word in a movie from
3: 1972. I didn't know how long, I I have no idea when humans first detected neutrinos. I wasn't, in my head, that was a relatively new thing because my understanding is they're pretty hard to detect because they move pretty quick and they move through just about everything. Um, So when I had heard they were made of neutrinos, I had assumed the planet was kind of blasting neutrinos out and they would happen to stop long enough, close enough to Kelvin for him to see his wife. So obviously she's still physically there because they're pushing things, they're moving things. She rips down the door, but I still saw it as a projection of his memories that the planet was manifesting with the neutrinos. And that's why when they got too far away from each other, the planet couldn't read the memories anymore or th- the memories either weren't strong enough at that point for the planet to maintain the neutrinos in the configuration that was required. Um, so that's how I kind of, that, that's why I'm I'm okay with saying, yeah, they're not hallucinations in terms of they can't or they're not they they may be hallucinations that can interact with the
1: physical world. So So one thing that that has come up uh, when Hari kind of goes crazy uh, when she's on the other side of the door, we we don't see or it's never explained what actually, if anything physiological actually happens to her. Because later she does leave him and she gets a lot further away uh, to get destroyed. Um, And, you know, she can do that willingly. So I think it's more... I guess, psychological. I mean, it's not a human, but, uh, you know, it, it doesn't show that they morph into something else or, you know, get destroyed if they get too far away.
0: I think it's part of their life cycle, though, because they they address this, that when the creatures, visitors, whatever we want to call them, are in their infancy, that they need to be, close by but the more she realized that she at first she thought she was hari and the more she realized she actually wasn't the actual hari the more flexibility and the more distance she could take from the source material so i feel like it was just the life cycle of these beings the more that they become firm and again become more human the distance those parameters that held them back are relinquished
2: I think that's true. I think the longer that they're around people, the more they absorb. And, you know, Hari says this. She feels she's becoming more human in the, uh, in the very sad snout birthday party. <laughs> <laughs> the saddest birthday party you'll ever go to. Um, but the other evidence of this, too, is Gabarian. Geber- Gabarian was one of the scientists who was friends with Kelvin and who committed suicide uh, before, before the uh, beginning of the film. Um, his guest is still there even though he's dead. We see a, a young girl walking around who's played by uh, Tarkovsky's stepdaughter. There's this kind of idea that she needs to be around Calvin a lot to absorb and become more human. Um, and at a certain point, there seems to be a degree of independence. But also, one thing to observe is that a lot of these rules are hard to pick up. Right? It's, it's, we're never given a clear anything in this, right? It's the the way these people feel are clear, um, but the the rules of the physical reality aren't.
1: So the last question on part one is therapists.
3: It's time for question three.
1: Why does Kelvin say he was chosen for the mission? So this uh, we'll discuss why he might have been chosen, but this is what he actually says. Locked in. Uh, locked in. I oh, have no idea. Locked in. Okay. I believe KJ, you're answering first this time.
3: Um yeah, I don't I don't remember at all. Um I I think he might have said uh because there was a funding issue, and he was the only one still on the payroll, or something. I, I don't remember.
0: <laughs> something to the effect of to see if they're crazy and the mission's worth continuing.
2: Uh, he says that he's a, a psychologist, and so he's there to to you know check on the the condition of the people.
1: Okay, so officially, uh, from what I remember, is that he's sent there to replace Gabarian. Oh, which is interesting because he didn't know Gabarian was dead until he got there.
0: I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, because I think because I don't remember that either. It's it it could work because he's supposed to replace him. If he's supposed to replace him, that doesn't mean that the other person would be shipped back first. So maybe he was because he was hoping to see him. I, I, there was a line where he was hoping to see Gabarian because they were friends. Well, he expected to see him. you know
1: <laughs> I think the the way i I'm seeing it is that uh whatever Gabarian was supposed to do wasn't really working uh these strange reports, and he's coming from Solaris and he's uh you know he he's not kind of making sense and bringing order back to the crew uh so maybe he was sent to send Geberian back home and determine you know, whether it should continue.
2: Yeah, what's interesting about this is that the, the idea of order and the spaceship seem to be <laughs> divergent concepts. I mean, the place is a mess. Um, you know, it, it's kind of like a rundown gas station at this point, and you get the impression that it was built for a, a greater number of people. And I think we actually learned it was built for a greater number of people, right, at one point?
1: Yeah. It was 85. Okay. Uh, though it's, it's, it's unclear how many people actually have been there at any given point.
2: Mm-hmm. But it, it was, it was something more or something greater. And, um, now it's this kind of rundown, um, kind of desolate place, you know, v- very used it, it, the whole set, the whole, uh, 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 design has a feeling of it being kind of used up, and you, you get the impression too that the visitors are a recent phenomena. But in the history of Solaris, this is not something that's common. Um, and this is sort of framed in the beginning of the film with the Burton report. But the, the the film begins on on Earth, and they're watching a report from Burton, who claims to have seen these kind of giant manifestations in the sky and uh, this happened a while ago because we have older Burton who's with Chris talking to him and younger Burton who's the film of his report is, is what we're seeing as well. Um, and this is kind of the first evidence we have that the planet is making something and that it might be making something humanoid um, and then when we get there, the you know the planet has perfected the the humans that it's making, and and so the the kind of desolation we're encountering, the kind of ripped down waste station we're seeing, seems to be kind of a, a real recent development. Nobody knows about it on
3: Earth. But don't they know from the Burton report? Was that Burton report not public? I mean, they didn't believe him. They did a great job introducing the question of whether Burton was sane or if he was insane, giving these reports. But I was under the impression that 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 report that um, that press conference, i had assumed it was a press conference, was public knowledge, and it was kind of up to the people to decide if they believe in Burton or not.
1: I, I wouldn't say public knowledge, but, you know, people on that commission or whatever, um, you know, have, have seen it. Um, I think with Burton, uh, there was no actual evidence of that any of these things were, were real and not a hallucination. Uh, so I think that's the information that Chris is going on when, when he goes to Solaris uh, to determine whether, the impression I got is he's trying to figure out if the crew members are hallucinating or you know, what's causing these hallucinations, but there's no indication that any of these things are, uh, are real. Or Well, uh, I think Burton uh, believes so, and I think there's one other person who thinks it might be true. Um, who offers a dissenting ob- opinion.
2: Yeah. And, and it's also with Burton, it's a different report. Right, so I think, first of all, it's, it's not quite public because Chris is an expert on Solaris and this is the first time he's seeing it.
3: Yeah, that's true. That's true.
2: Yep. Right, we, yep. Get, we're given that impression.
3: And also
2: what Burton saw was, I think, a giant baby. Right, isn't that what he's, it was like a, an eight foot tall baby? It was a giant, it was a big baby. <laughs>
1: four four meters, I think. So that's uh, 12, uh, 12 feet.
2: 12 feet, yeah. okay, yeah, a 12 feet baby. Um, and, and it was it was disgusting, right? He says it's kind of like covered in a slime and it's sort of gross. Um, the book goes into a little more, but we don't, we don't have to talk about that. Um, but we're not, Burton's experience is not the experience of the people on
3: the station. But it's a prelude to it. But how long ago was that press conference?
0: A long time, because he looks much younger in that press conference, and then later he's balding and all that. So I'm glad you brought that up, KJP, I think that was an early attempt by the planet Ocean to create these type of beings in the likeness of human, humans. So I think that was an earlier attempt. He didn't quite get the scale and the size right. <laughs> it's just like with uh, uh, early 3D modeling, when they try to make it look like a human, it doesn't quite look human. We're getting better and better. I feel it was the same thing.
3: And so presumably the planet's been practicing and getting better, although I understand it's dangerous to guess what the planet's doing. But the um, I was surprised that you had a press conference that was 10, 20, 30 years ago and then nothing. And then now we're sending Kelvin. Why weren't there more reports of strange things occurring since the Burton report? I, I don't know if anything
2: like that has. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't necessarily want to like jump into the book all the time because the book's just very different. But you know, in the in the book, there's a ton of stuff that happens, right? And we get all the reports, you know. And Doug, you've you've read it, right?
1: Yeah. Just finished it this morning.
2: <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a uh, um, there's these different constructions the planet makes. There's these different kind of architectural features the planet has. Um, there's there's a kind of a lexicon for to, you know. So th- there's a ton of stuff the planet does. Although the the guests are a brand new thing.
3: Okay, so in the movie, we're supposed to assume that while Burton was up there, some number of years ago, he saw a a guest to use it loosely in this case an imperfect guest they've been doing other science since because otherwise why would they be funding it and have people up there so there's they're outside of solaris they're still doing other science but no reports of anything similar to burton's original
0: guest. well Burton was also disgraced So maybe that space station that was allowed to have a lot more people, maybe slowly but surely, which we're not introduced to in the movie, they got the heck out of there and just were like, I'm done with this. So that's maybe why the station, which was built for, looks like it was built for a lot more people, is sparse.
1: There's also, you know, the fact that, you know, how Burton's report was received, you know, may mean that other people are experiencing strange things and they're not going to report it. Exactly. I was just gonna say one other thing um, to note is that when Burton saw this baby, it was during a rescue mission. I think it was Fechner, physis- the physicist, who had disappeared. And um, I'm not sure actually if it how what if it was clear in the movie or if I'm mixing it up with the book. But I believe he fell into the ocean. Um, and uh, so Burton later. Uh, sees Fechner's son back on Earth and it's the baby but not, you know, four
0: meters tall. Interesting. I do know that we are introduced that he was on a rescue mission for Fechner. Yeah. I don't know the details but he, that was the... Case. Yeah,
1: but w- I, one other interesting thing that I that I thought of recently um, m- might be a plot hole but uh, I think it takes a very long time to get between Solaris and Earth. So... If Eckner, uh had a son, you know, and then he, you know, he he got, to, you know, however many months maybe it takes to get to Solaris, uh, and then for him to kind of fall into the ocean, and then Burton to see that, and then Burton to go all the way back to Earth, shouldn't that kid not be a baby anymore by that point?
0: <laughs> that th- we don't have a firm timeline on how long it takes to get out there, because I was actually thinking about that when KJ was asking his prior question of when did that happen versus when does this person arrive they don't really answer that the other thing i was just trying to uh, retcon this and that maybe the the other gentleman lost all his hair out of trauma <laughs> so maybe it was like a week ago <laughs> but he's <laughs> just like i've aged tremendously yeah, you get the
2: impression <laughs> it happens instantaneously or very close they just they just go yeah, there yeah um,
0: you know It's kind of like Star Wars Lightspeed. It takes as long as it needs to. Like, that's the one thing they leave elusive so that they can fit any storyline.
2: Yeah. And there are plot holes in this or gaps in terms of why people do things. So it's not, you know, like um, when Chris decides he's going to stay with Hari, he says, I'm going to stay with you. Yet he willingly participates with the encephalogram in order to destroy the guests <laughs> there's things like that that pop up in the movie so it's um plot consistency doesn't seem to be a particular something Tarkovsky's particularly interested in um but yeah I, I get the impression it just sort of
0: happens like you know like a wormhole type thing well, that takes us to the end of round one. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of. The in which a group of. The podcast in which group of.
3: B-side. KJ here from Talking Pictures Trivia, and I'd like to tell you about Talking Pictures Trivia B-side. Can't get enough of Talking Pictures Trivia? Head on over to our website. YouTube channel, or where you normally listen to Talking Pictures Trivia, to find The B-Side, where we talk about the movies you love. Talking Pictures Trivia B-Side goes further into the movies we talk about on this podcast and compares them to other media that has been on our mind. Here's a quick sample.
2: Welcome back to B-Side. I'm Tom here. And today in B-Side, we're going to be covering Solaris and Stalker, two films of Tarkovsky's. Uh, We're going to look in this week and next at two aspects of Solaris that came up in our discussion. First, in this week, we're going to take a look at uh, the type of knowledge that is interesting to Tarkovsky and the type of knowledge I think he is using. I'm going to start then with a brief summary of Stalker, since this is a b-side to Solaris. I'm going to assume everybody listening is familiar enough with Solaris's plot.
3: Flip this record over by heading to TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, our YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts to hear more on the
0: B-side. And we're back for round two. Doug, take it away.
1: All right. So you guys are in a dead even heat. Everyone has one point. Uh, Nick has got the first question right, and Tom and KJ got the second question right. And nobody got the third one right. So for round two each of these questions are worth two points and the topics are the pen is mightier household objects and where are you now so nick why don't you choose this time i think i'm going to go with the pen
3: is mightier it's time for question four
1: what book do they read from in the library locked in I'm locked in.
3: Uh, locked in.
1: All right. Tom was the most uh, enthusiastic. So
0: let's go. with Tom first.
2: They are reading from Don Quixote by Cervantes.
0: My thought, and I thought I might be up for a partial credit unless Tom is right. I thought they were reading from Dostoevsky. I do not recall which specific book. So that's why I'm hoping for partial credit if I am correct.
3: I can't remember at all, but my daughter's quite excited to read Charlotte's Web. So I'm going to assume they were reading from Charlotte's Web.
1: <laughs> so Tom gets this right. So it's not this, part of why it's hard is because it's not explicitly named. Um, there's a quote and um, I believe he, he mentions Sancho, which is Sancho Panza. Um, and I think there's, there's an illustration of Don Quixote, but I, I don't think it's actually named, uh, or at least not in the subtitles that I saw.
2: Yeah, it, it is a name. you have to get it from them reading or from the, the picture? Because you see that picture float back and forth of you know, the, the ridiculous night. Um, am,
0: I, am I correct that they at least bring up Dostoevsky at some point in this movie? Because I think I remember them saying that.
1: I, I I think I could I think I remember Dostoevsky being mentioned once and Tolstoy yes. being mentioned once, which yeah. might be like a requirement of all Russian. Yeah, <laughs> we
0: gotta throw them in there.
2: Well, Dostoevsky actually was a problem, I think, because uh, the the censors this movie dealt with censors uh, quite viciously. I I don't think they were particularly fond of of Dostoevsky mentions, but I'm trying to remember the that when Dostoevsky was mentioned.
0: I, I that's I just remembered that he was mentioned Mm -hmm. at some point. It may have also been in the library in the conversation, but not that specific book.
2: I remember Tolstoy being mentioned uh, in regard to uh, religious belief.
3: Yeah. I, I don't, I don't remember the Dostoevsky. So I'm not too familiar with Don Quixote. Does Don Quixote feed back into Solaris somehow? Is there a relationship there?
2: I mean, he's, he's a knight who imagines fake circumstances in order to live out uh, a kind of a fantasy. Um, the, the thing with Don Quixote, what you learn at the end of, of the book is that Don Quixote is completely aware that he's manufacturing this. And in fact, he isn't delusional. It's, it's a, he's willingly playing this role, right?
0: Tom, you brought that up in, I don't, I don't know if it was a prior episode or just an off, off, uh, offline conversation. That was actually news to me. I, I didn't know the part we're at the end that he's supposed to be saying, I, I guess I've always read the children's versions, but not with him um, jousting with windmills that he thought were giants and, and whatnot. So I, I that was news to me when you brought that up uh, before.
3: So Kelvin's experience might be similar. He, 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 by the end of this film might be in a situation. Like when he says I'm staying with Hari, that's kind of a Don Quixote moment then when he, he knows that this isn't Hari, but, it's either close enough or he wants it to be, so he's, he's going to stay with
0: her. Even to the next level, when he goes to the island, he knows that he's not back on Earth, and that is just a reproduction of an environment and a thought and a place that he went or goes to.
1: It's like Cypher wanting to stay in the Matrix. <laughs>
2: yeah, it, it's, yeah you're, you're kind of creating your own hallucinations. The, the other side of it, though, is that Don Quixote has a lot of control it resonates from Quixote. Um control is something the, the none of these characters have. Right. And the hallucination for Kelvin then is that he can, you know, control this situation. And you can see that with the the stress between him and Snout, right? Where he's, you know, wants to take her back or back to Earth, that is. Um, and, you know, kind of Snout's says <laughs> you know,
3: can't do that. Um that that's not going to work. So speaking of bringing people back, question about Burton. When we're in the car, there's a scene in this movie where towards the beginning, they get in a car and you drive for however long it takes to get from where they are to where they are going. Literally, you see every street sign, every painted white line on the highway. It takes them a long time. And there's a kid or somebody in the back seat. Is he a guest? Was he one of Burton's guests?
1: I think he's Burton's son. Uh, isn't he the one who appears earlier with the horse, uh, gets scared by the horse?
2: Yeah, we were given a few characters. So for our audience, the the movie opens on earth and we're at either Kelvin's house or Kelvin's father's house. And we're given a collection of characters. One of them is, it is like a woman with black hair and piercing eyes. who we'd know isn't Kelvin's mother, but we don't know who she is.
1: She, uh, she's his aunt.
2: She's his aunt. Okay. Okay. And then there's a kid Who's scared of a horse? <laughs> um, who I apparently comes with comes to the house with Burton and then leaves with Burton. But I don't think we're told who he is. He seems to be part of Burton's thing, though, right?
1: I I thought it was mentioned that it was his son. But oh, okay, okay. Uh, I mm-hmm. that one I, I'm less sure about them? Yeah, less sure about than the ant. Um, I might have to rewatch the whole thing.
2: <laughs> yeah. I don't think so what other evidence would he would there be that that's
3: a guest? I don't have any concrete evidence. um, but the way the kid reacted to the horse, the way he was kind of sitting awkwardly in the back seat, I don't think he speaks, made him feel very alien to me, which again, he he kind of acted like the guests did up on the space station here on earth. So I don't have any hard ev- evidence, but while I was watching the movie, Bert, you, you see Burton's report, which he saw the the giant um, first guest, so to say. And then there was this kid hanging around that there was no explanation for. Even before we got up there and I knew there was going to be more guests, I was like, hmm, I wonder if this is part of that.
0: I think what we learn later in the movie and we don't learn a lot. OK, so that's why I'm really holding on to the few bits of knowledge that are shared with us. The fact that he says that these neutrino based life forms would not be able to survive further than where they are would say that that is the contrary. However, if we want to, you know, just make up a little bit and take some liberties, the only way that would fit into the story, in my opinion, is if that original briefing was eight years ago or whatever the age of that boy. Uh, if you, somehow he tagged along, <laughs> but I, I, I didn't get m- strong evidence in the beginning. I was trying to figure things out too and see if there were connections. But once I found out that these beings couldn't live so far out away from the ocean due to their structure, I, I'm inclined to think that was just something that they put out there to get your mind starting to turn the gears, but really not have a payday.
1: Yeah. I didn't, I didn't think that he was uh, not human, but uh, you know, n- now that it's come up uh you know the uh neutrino guests uh they don't age uh they're well I, I mean we don't know if they age but when they're created they're created um at the age that the uh the person remembers them uh so they're not you know whatever age that they they should be you know um you know, if if I think Hari had, had died 10 years earlier. Um, But she's, you know, the younger version.
3: Yeah, in my head canon, part of his trauma was that kid. So that kid was a memory he had. And yes, that kid was not going to age. That kid was always going to be that age. And if he got too far away from Burton is when he would, Marty McFly, disappear away. Well, again, was my... Yeah, his- yeah.
0: No, and, and, and it, they only give us so much evidence in this movie to how these things interact. We, we make an assumption. We know they come back at a certain age, but we actually don't know if they age or age slower or age faster or they haven't been around. The only one that we've seen that lingered was the female with the, with the doctor who killed herself, but he didn't kill himself that long ago. So we don't, I, I think it's one of those things we can really start going down the rabbit hole. And I, I think that could even be an interesting side discussion, but we'll never get a, a firm answer on that.
2: Agreed, agreed. Yeah, I, I mean, we won't, but in terms of the the conflict of the movie, the, the problem with the guests is that they trap people to the station, right? For whatever reason, you know, it makes sense in terms of Kelvin. Kelvin doesn't want to leave because now he's gotten his, his wife who's died back, right? And he feels guilty for her death. Um, and, and now he's kind of gotten a sort of sense of forgiveness for this. I mean, if she comes back, that, that helps alleviate the guilt. And that seems to be the case with, with uh, Sartorius and Snout also, um, though it's a little harder to, you know, we don't know who their guests are. We see both of them, but we don't really know what their relationship is with them. And the idea of the, the encephalogram of sending it into the planet is, you know, a, is kind of like an attack on the planet to get them free to get these guests away. So they can sort of be free of, of their influence. So it seems that in, in terms of the conflict, the guests secure you or keep you trapped to the planet.
3: So that's interesting. So Tom, the way I interpret it again, which could be completely wrong. Um, one of the movies we had watched for another thing we had done was called arrivals. And a big thing in arrivals was how do you communicate? And I, I, took it as the planet was trying to do a nice thing by taking one of your memories. You're, they're bringing somebody back that you wish was still around. So the planet thought it was doing a good thing. Obviously this was torture for the people on the space station outside Solaris. Eventually the solution wasn't to attack the planet, not use the word attack, but send more knowledge, communicate more with the planet to be like, Hey, uh, this isn't actually working out. Maybe something else would work better. It was kind of how I interpreted that solution they had.
0: I said, I, I think Tom kind of addressed this earlier on in this recording, that the movie tends to stay ambiguous on the intent of the planet. We can infer, we can deduce, but but it still stays ambiguous on the actual intent.
2: But I think, KJ, you're right in terms of "attack" is the wrong word. I, I definitely use the the wrong word. I think in. Oh, so help me out, Doug. Is it the book or
3: the movie where they throw radiation on the planet?
2: I know they do it in the book. Do they also do it in the movie? Yeah,
3: in the movie, they say the 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 guest arrived after they sent radiation down on
1: the planet.
2: Okay, yeah. yeah so they I, have I think they, it
1: was all of them.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So they they have attacked the planet
2: before in the sense of they intended to hurt the planet. Um, so I, I think you're right, KJ. It's it is a not an attack. It's it's an attempt to give information.
1: Just, so I, I don't know if they intended to hurt it, but I think they were you know, just experimenting to see what would happen. Because I, I think they, what came up later is uh, sending like harder radiation to actually hurt it. But I don't think they actually did that. They did the encephalogram instead.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So I guess they did light light radiation originally.
3: Yeah, I agree. I, I don't even, I don't think the radiation was an attack. I think it, it, it was, oh, we meet something new. And kind of like in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, when we they used light and sound to communicate, I think they were just saying, "Oh, maybe they use radiation. Maybe this is a a form of
0: saying hello or something." It, again, was the way I interpreted. And again, this was also a science station. This wasn't a military operation.
2: Yeah, the, but I, I, in terms of what is the the planet doing, I, I do think that's just beyond us. Um, you know. I, I don't think we, we get that. I mean, that's the entire theme of the, the book. Uh, and there's another Lem novel, not that we need to, to go into Lem novels, which is, is basically the plot of Arrival, the Jodie Foster movie. <laughs> he just, it's just in the 1970s when he wrote it, where aliens send them a- mean,
1: Sorry, do you mean Arrival or do you mean Contact?
2: Contact, I'm sorry, Contact, yeah. Uh, I don't remember the name of the book, but basically aliens send like a protoplasm, which they think is a message, and the whole book is that I'm trying to figure out what this message is, and nobody can figure out what, what's going on. Um, and so it's a, it's a kind of constant theme there. But I, I think trying to know the, the ocean is, is the, the mystery that they're never going to get, right? It's, it's facing an impossible mystery. And what comes out of it is this kind of devastating human contact.
1: All right. So for question number five, there are two topics left. Uh, Tom, It'll be your choice and two topics are household objects and where are you now?
2: I'm gonna go with household objects for two.
1: It's time for question five. How did the original Hari, and this means the Hari on earth, uh, how did she die?
0: Locked in. Locked in. Locked in.
1: Let's go with Nick first.
0: She poisoned herself. She put it into a syringe and put it into her arm, poisoning herself. I didn't realize it was that specific.
3: I knew it was suicide, but I didn't remember exactly what form. Kelvin had
2: come home with some subjects that were poisonous, and he revealed that to her. And he had mentioned you know, that, that they were poisonous. She threatened to, to kill herself. Uh, he left. He you know, didn't come back because he, he didn't want to, you know, take her her threat legitimately. And then she um she injected herself in the arm with the poison he had brought home.
1: Nick and Tom, you got the I think it, it more correctly. You, I'll give you half a point for this because you got the Well one point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah that's right. you're, you're two points for this. Uh yeah you'll get one point for this. No half
0: points. <laughs> um
1: so the interesting thing is um Chris Calvin's a psychologist. So why does he have uh access to these dangerous biological samples and then why is he bringing them home and sticking in the refrigerator?
0: Because the plot needed it. <laughs> yeah, his his
2: expertise are really interesting. He means he seems to be part physicist, um, you know, part Psychologist, part chemist. Uh, yeah, there's a sort of a, He seems to fill fulfill whatever role they need, um, and he also does virtually no work at the same time. We <laughs> I mean, never seem to do anything helpful or practical. Uh, I, I, it almost seems like being going to Solaris requires you to be an expert on Solaris, which might just be kind of a Venn space of these these different disciplines. Yeah, you know, it, it's sort of like a, a medieval philosopher, right? A medieval philosopher is um, sort of well-versed in, in everything. They have to sort of know everything, just because in, in let's say, circa 1300 or, or 1275 or something, you could actually possess all knowledge that, that the world has. Um, and it seems to be if you're a solaricist, if you're study- somebody studying this phenomenon, um, we are so primitive vis-a-vis the planet, that we as humans can actually possess all knowledge that humans have generated about the planet, kind of. He's a generic man of science. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's it's almost medieval. And and what's interesting about that, uh, you know, this is I think one of the themes of it is this idea of what knowledge is, which is this kind of knowledge of of facts and, and rationality, and then knowledge that is lived experience or human experience. Um, in, in the Middle Ages, this divides pretty nicely in, in Catholic studies between the kind of scholastic school of somebody like St. Thomas and then you know the, the more mystical tradition, which is all about sort of um, meditating on the life of a saint or the life of Christ or the life of Mary or, or, or whatnot, and then experiencing that through the the meditation. Um, but it's not a kind of a, a rational means of approaching your your religious devotion. It's not a rational means of approaching God the way you know, like a, like a, a Saint Thomas or, or Albert the Great or one of those philosophers would approach God through kind of rational discussion. Um, it's a it's it's experiencing God in a way that's sort of, defies articulation, even though, you know, these people wrote a lot the the mystics wrote a lot. Um, And I think that's kind of what's going on here. It's man of science, super rational, knows everything, and he runs into a a somewhat mystical experience.
1: Okay, so we are at the final question, Uh, again, worth two points. And the topic is, where are you now? It's time for question six. At the end of the movie, uh, when Kelvin realizes he's not on Earth, what's the first indication uh, that we see uh, that tells us something's wrong or something is not correct, that he's not actually on Earth?
2: I have two that I think are both legitimate, but I'm going to lock in on the more obvious one. You can give more than one answer. Okay. Then I'm locked in. Locked in.
0: I'll lock in.
1: Let's go with Nick first.
0: Okay. My first answer was going to be which is too obvious when they pan out and we clearly see that it's an island. Okay. But something that I noticed when I first started seeing, it was almost like like smoke and like water dripping on things. Like it was almost like create. Like I don't know how to explain it, but there was like this smoky fog, and then there was water dripping on inside the house, outside even. So something to do with that smoky fog going on.
3: Yeah, similar to think. Wasn't it raining inside his house?
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Like I, I, I
0: well, I don't know about raining, but there was water, water dripping. Water dripping. Yeah. So that that. And then almost like a smokiness. Sorry, this would. is your answer. yeah no 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 that's fine yeah that, that, that
3: water dripping and the a thrill yeah so I, I'm think I'm with Nick on this one and Tom um, yeah the the
2: one I thought was a little more obvious is it's it's sort of raining indoors so to speak and we see that from a cut of Kelvin through the window walking um, the other one which I think is is less obvious and also can we can contend it a little bit is that the fire in which he burnt his papers is still going. Um, So we actually see that fire first. Presumably that could be another fire. They just start another fire or something, Um, but we still see his papers in it. So I, I, you know, so I'm going to, I'm going to, let's say lock in with the indoor rain, just because it's a little more obvious.
1: Yeah. So I, I did not catch the fire at the first, Point and I, th- I think it is a little unclear as to whether or not that's the same fire. Um but uh officially I would say the answer is the the raining uh indoors, but if you had chosen the fire, I would give you credit for that as well. So everybody gets two points. Um and so one thing I, I think is a little funny. Um so it, it rains earlier at the beginning of the movie, but you know, being um I guess 1972 and special effects. It doesn't really look like rain. It looks like you know people just pouring water in front of the screen. <laughs> so uh, so at the end, I think it's raining indoors, but it's also like it's you know kind of dripping, and it's it's not clear whether it's uh, you know an overflowing bathtub upstairs or, or rain. yeah, raining
0: or leaking. That's that's exactly. I was like, there's water. Yeah. Coming from a source that's <laughs> undetermined. And even on the the old man, like it's tripping yep. on him.
1: And and it's it's not unusual to him. He's not acting uh surprised.
2: Yeah, I think it does reflect the the beginning though, right? I mean it's it in the beginning we see the rain and it doesn't. I'd say it doesn't necessarily look good. <laughs> you know I think right before they started filming this movie's budget got cut in half so that a lot of this movie is you know the work working with that limitation. Um but the the end of the movie does reflect that, right? I mean it's the same phenomena, but it's wrong. Right? There, there's some there's details that are wrong in it, which is, is that it it doesn't rain inside houses, you know, that's why we have houses in, in part. Um, and so there's this kind of idea of water and all the kind of the, the symbols, the obvious symbols that water carries with it, which is why I think this movie is, is better enjoyed if it's considered obvious, like water cleans, right? Water redeems. Um, and it's also the first shot we have of the movie is the lake. Is the, oh, not the, yeah, it is a lake, a, a lake with kind of weeds in it. Um, you know, water redeems, water, water clears. And when Kelvin is at home in Russia, he's, you know, sitting outdoors getting rained on. Um, and in the end, uh, you know, he, that, that rain comes in and kind of covers everything he owns. And he falls down on his knees in front of his father. And there's this kind of, this idea of kind of the, the, the prodigal son coming home. The actual, him embracing his father literally looks like Rembrandt's The Prodigal Son. You know him, him grabbing his father and and uh, and asking for forgiveness and receiving forgiveness. And water is kind of associated with that forgiving, cleansing process. Um, but at the same time, it's water that's in the wrong place, <laughs> and, and a man who's completely alone and isolated on a you know on a on a mysterious planet. And so there's the kind of the obvious symbol, and then the subversion of that symbol occurring at the same
1: time so here are the totals in third place with four points we have kj woo in second place with five points we have nick
0: so close
1: and big reveal uh, in seven uh first place with seven points we have our resident solaris expert tom Yay, congrats, I'm the (laughs) Solarisist. That'll
0: be my Twitter handle. (laughs) Congratulations, Tom. Uh, I'm sure there's still more to explore about this movie. Uh, We'll continue with Movie Rant right after this quick commercial break.
3: We here at Perfectly Placed hope you've been enjoying the freedom Perfectly Placed brings you as much as we have enjoyed having access to your entire life. We have an opportunity for you. If you refer a friend, you and your friend get a week of Perfectly Placed for free. Simply send us a copy of your friend's keys, combinations, and passwords, and we'll waive our one-question questionnaire. Notice something your friend could use help with? Simply follow your friend on Perfectly Placed and add suggestions for us to include in our Perfectly Placed suggestions. Does your husband leave his shoes in the middle of the kitchen? Why not leave him a Perfectly Placed reminder? Does your coworker cook smelly fish in the microwave? Why not leave them a Perfectly Placed note? Is it your friend's round in the bar and they just happen to forget again? Why not leave them a Perfectly Placed reminder? Perfectly Placed. We get around to reminding you what you'll get around to, and we're back. It's time for
1: movie rant. All right, I'd like to start off movie rant with uh, something I just found enjoyable is Kelvin's monogrammed pajamas.
0: I too noticed his monogram
1: pajamas. There's a very specific detail. I just, I just enjoyed that about the movie.
3: <laughs> is it KK?
1: Yep. Yes, it's on the pocket. Yeah. I think in in a lot of these science fiction, you know, space uh, movies, everyone has these generic suits. Um, So I I just personally like the personalization. You know, he he brought his own pajamas, assuming that there there didn't happen to be pajamas with his initials already on the space station.
0: Well, when you go to a space station, you got to bring, you know, your own clothes. I mean, that's just the way it is. Yeah, the, the initial costume designer was fired
2: because she had wanted to do more futuristic stuff. And when he brought in the the new person, who I, I don't remember her name now, um, it was kind of like, let's do something timeless. Uh, and so there's there's costumes that seem to be from wildly different eras. Uh, Kelvin's outfit, when he first comes on, he, he looks like a, I don't know, like an Eastern European DJ or something. He has this like mesh shirt and these pants. Disco, yeah, disco, and, disco. Uh, <laughs> but but Hari is, is dressed in what appears to be Native American garb. Like Western American, um, like her her outfit, right? It's this leather, um, this really kind of interesting leather outfit that is drawn from, you know, Native American culture, uh, and and so the there's something kind of timeless about the the costumes of the movie. Anyway, I guess that includes the, the monogram and the jumps that he brought.
0: I wonder if that has anything to do with the budget cuts that you were talking about. They're like, okay, what do you guys got in your closet? Yeah, yeah but
2: I mean, it, it was a deliberate <laughs> choice. And you could tell, I mean, you, know, you, could, you could do something more normal or what? not normal, but um, more contemporary for Hari's costume. You, could, you have her dress like a you know, 1970s Russian woman, right? Uh, or, or I guess dress in her own mesh shirt or, or whatnot. Um, but there is this kind of eclecticness
3: to the, the outfits that they wear that I think is revealed with Hari. One of the things that I really liked was all the TV sets were widescreen, maybe even wider than 16 by nine that we kind of have going now. And I, I, I liked thinking, are they projectors or were they CRTs? Did they go out and make super widescreen CRTs for this movie so that they could film that? And then I thought it'd be fun If in our world, even though this is kind of impractical, if there was a bunch of different aspect ratio CRTs kind of just all over the place and you just happened to get one that was whatever you wanted and then they had to figure out how to get the picture to look right on that. I don't know. I really liked all the super widescreen TVs that they had.
0: What I will say is they are supposed to be CRTs. I'm not saying that's what they used in the movie because they have those rounded edges for like a bulbous screen so like they clearly had the view of a crt the old school tv just were giants so they they got it right even before uh back to the future <laughs> big screen tvs are the future
2: yeah the the futuristic elements of it are um i don't know if you want to call it a problem or lacking there there was that one scene i think kj you mentioned it the five minute city of the future scene where Burton just drives into a city. Oh, I mean, we could say it's Moscow, but there's also, I think, Japanese lettering in, in one of the signs.
3: Yeah, I don't remember if it was Japanese or if it was all just what well, would be kanji, so I don't know if it was Chinese. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think who, who was... If you were living in the USR making a movie, where else would you be allowed to film? Maybe China, That's, right? Probably yeah. more likely, yeah.
1: It was filmed in uh Akas- akasaka and tokyo
2: oh oh okay so, so that's hmm. okay they yeah.
1: probably didn't have the budget to change <laughs> signs mm-hmm. and stuff yeah. like that
2: yeah i am the the that whole sequence is kind of i it might be to give you a sort of city of the future and experience of the city of the future. I mean, it's often referred to as the city of the future sequence, even though it looks pretty, pretty much like a normal city to, to anybody else. And I mean, you know, you can maybe use the USSR context and say that the more people with cars would, would be alien to to people in the Soviet union. But generally I couldn't find a reading for why that scene is in the movie. Um, Other than it kind of creates this meditative, tone this sort of um um opportunity to reflect slowly on the occurrences
0: around you and that's all i got from that so since we're talking about the earlier part of the movie this is one of the, the few things i did want to make sure we we addressed did we need like an hour before they go to space and my opinion is no I don't think we need it. Cause that's when it got interesting to me is once he finally got to space, but I feel like they could have shortened and be like, Hey, there's some weird stuff going up there. We don't believe this guy. You should go check it out. Go. What, what do you guys think?
1: Oh, uh, I was just going to say in the book, it's all in space pretty much. Um, which is, is strange because usually uh, the movies cut stuff out of the book. I mean, they, they cut other stuff out, but um, the the other remake also has a whole bunch of stuff on Earth, um, which I think it, it's there to explain some things that otherwise you probably have to just have like a monologue or, you know, watch videos to explain. But it is pretty long in the, in the 72 movie.
3: It's funny you guys say that because I think I actually liked the parts on Earth better than space. I think I would have been fine if the whole movie kind of took place on earth and there was this mysterious thing going on elsewhere. I, it would have been a different movie, but I, I loved the introduction of Burton. I thought they did a great job of me questioning, did this guy see that? Did he not? Was he insane? I, I, I liked all those beats on earth. Even the drive, like you're saying, Tom, it did set up the pacing for the rest of the movie. Um, so it was interesting that they included it.
0: I think the optimal way for me to view this movie was for KJ to watch the beginning, summarize it, and then I could watch the end and then summarize it for him. And I think that would be our optimal experience. Combo viewing. (laughs) (laughs) And on the other note, to Doug's point, usually I'm not uh, always a big fan of a giant exposition in the beginning of a film. However, I feel like I would have been totally fine with it on this one.
3: Yeah, you get a choice. Giant exposition or an hour of people sitting <laughs> in a house talking
2: about it. G- give me a Star Wars <laughs> scroll, okay? The, the, it does tonally set up everything, though, that opening sequence, as well as the conflict. Um, first of all, we get the information from, literally, the information that from Burton that there's this thing, Solaris, and it's doing something weird, right? It's doing something strange and unexplainable. Um, we We get I think tonally and visually, though not literally, uh, the the difficulties that Chris is having um, he's uh, he's in this place where he can't communicate with people. Often, when he's talking with his father, their their backs are to each other. Very often, I mean, this seems to be a deliberate choice by Tarkovsky. Um, we also have this this notion of. Um, this kind of this feel or this, this meditative notion that comes from the, the city sequence as well. Uh, but it's also in there when he's walking around, when he's looking at the water. Um, he's also kind of trying to kill off his past self. He burns everything he owns. Um, th- the notion of something that's a threat, but when you look at it again, it isn't a threat. This comes through the horse, when the boy goes to see the horse. Initially, the horse, for some reason, this boy is scared of horses. Uh, initially, you know when we see the horse, it's filmed, from below at an angle that's at a camera angle that's looking up, looking up at it, um, and then later when the boy comes to see the horse, it's it's kind of filmed neutrally. But, you know, it's it's a horse, it's fine. Uh, all all those kind of things set up what's actually going to be happening, and then we also um, we are also given contrasts too: the natural world contrasts the the alien world of Solaris. Um, you know, we're we're kind of given information about who the, these people are, which is contrast with the simulation that Solaris is able to provide, and which is what the movie ends on. The movie ends on absolute simulation. Um, so I think you need that that opening scene in order to, I don't know about the five minute drive that, that Burton takes. <laughs> maybe maybe we could trim that one down. Um, but I, I do think you need that opening sequence to juxtapose the, the end. Um, and it also, and you also needed to set the tone to set the pace, which is, this is something that we're going to kind of be
3: reflecting on, not, um, not
2: barreling through.
3: Speaking of the pace, there was a lot of long shots in this movie. They were, the camera would just hold, but there was one that I can kind of remember and it, it felt like the longest to me was in the space station. I think in Kelvin's room, there was water dripping. So... I think water dripping happened quite often in this movie. I don't know why there was water dripping in his room. I don't remember why, but it kind of goes to the, when it was raining or water dripping in his house.
1: Yeah. Was this towards the end?
3: Yeah. Harry was already around. Harry may have also uh, may have already uh, drank in the liquid oxygen. So yeah, I think it was fairly late in the movie.
2: Yeah. I, I I don't remember the specifics of why there's water there. Do they explain it or is it just
3: something's dripping? I don't think they explain it. Yeah.
0: The only thing I can think of it, if it's towards the end where you're saying again, his personal cleansing of the experience, that's the only thing I can, I mean, I'm, grasping at straws with that one, but uh, that's all I could see if there is some kind of symbolism there.
2: Yeah, I mean, water is everywhere, right? It, it's what she uses to kill herself. Um, it's what we, like I said before, it's what we start the movie on, right? We start the movie on well, she drinks something, right? She drinks the liquid um, oxygen. Li- liquid oxygen. Yeah,
1: I mean, water is partially composed of oxygen. Yeah, right? oh, okay. So.
2: That's fair. Maybe I'm stretching <laughs> there. Um, but the planet... Throw a few hydrogens yeah. in there. But the planet is also... Um, a liquid substance, right? It, it's something that's kind of amorphous, not defined. Uh, it, it's something that is used in terms of baptism, right? That, you know, you you baptize you, um, endow a, a child with kind of access to this this religious community via water. Um, it also cleans you of your sins, right? It, it's supposed to cleanse you of your your past crimes, which Calvin needs. Um, but at the same time, it seems like there's a lot of, uh, you know, it, it's also water, or the planet rather, um, seems to be harming these people, right? I mean, it seems to be as, um, it, it seems too easy to say that water is cleansing and helps you forgive your sins, and therefore Kelvin is forgiven of his his sins vis-a-vis Kari, Hari by the end of the picture, right? It seems like, if anything, he's his, um, I don't know, he seems almost trapped as well as forgiven. It's, it's an odd juxtaposition.
3: I don't normally like to read Wikipedia and then just regurgitate it on the show, but something interesting I read on Wikipedia, um, according to Wikipedia, in the USSR, this movie was only released in five theaters, but it sold 10.5 million tickets because it screened for 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> just and it was an interesting release i you know I, maybe that was common in the USsr
0: I, I mean I don't know how many theaters they had but going along with that kj I was looking into some trivia on this one and though it was the most widely seen of Andrei Tarkovsky's films outside the Soviet Union uh he actually thought it was the least favorite of the films he directed so it got a lot of views both within uh that time period within the country as well as throughout the world but it wasn't even considered his greatest work in his opinion and i actually wanted to bring this up because i'm wondering if this was off of the coattails of like 2001 a space odyssey which came out in 1968 if that influenced that audience um to enjoy something like this when i started watching this movie I didn't know that's what I was getting into. And to be quite honest with you, I I want to bring this up before the the show ended for some reason, when I had a basic plot summary of this movie, I was expecting more of like, maybe not a horror, but more of like a 1997 event horizon where there's weird stuff going on, on the ship. And this guy comes to investigate. I thought that's what I was getting into. And I ended up getting into this deeper sci-fi that was more reminiscent of 2001, a space Odyssey in my head, just to kind of put this full circle. I just wanted to get your guys' thoughts on any of that when, you know, your opinions of what you were getting into or for Tom, you've been seeing this movie forever um, on that whole idea. Would the audience know what they're getting into?
2: Well, it was billed as the Russian 2001. It actually was considered that. Um, I, I I, kind of hate 2001, A Space Odyssey. I, I th- You know, I think that movie is is... Sort of void of 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 meaning, and it you know it's just like a bunch of overlit scenes, and you know there's like no human beings in it, right? The the thing you remember from 2001 is how the computer that yeah. threatens
0: everyone. I like elements of that movie, but not the yeah. Movie. And
2: it's also like, <laughs> what, where are we going with this? That you know, a space baby is you know, giant space babies <laughs> are are possible or something? I you know, um, I the the love of 2001, I don't get. I, I find this movie to be very very. Different from that, um, but it suffered from the comparison because two thousand one was well budgeted and won the uh, Academy Award for special effects and and all those types of things. Um, but I think the comparison is important, Nick, because I it it, it definitely um, it's definitely kind of drawing you into that same headspace, and I think the the remake, the Soderbergh remake, is doing the same thing uh, that two thousand one is. I think. The, the Soderbergh remake is as influenced by 2001 as it is by this material. Um, the, the the Soderbergh remake ends on a shot of the planet and it looks like a womb. It looks like the, the womb of a, a, you know, obviously a woman, um, you know, and, and that's the same shot that, not the same shot, but a similar shot that 2001 A Space Odyssey ends on. Um, But I think both of those films, the remake in 2001, are not doing the same thing that this is doing, or even that the book is doing, Uh, you know, which I think is trying to come to some sort of knowledge about something that you can come to, but that you can only experience. You know, I I don't think... um, I I don't know that 2001 A Space Odyssey is doing that. I don't know if it's doing anything, but uh, that would be my kind of reading of this.
0: All I wanted to insert was, uh, I think Tarkovsky would agree with you because I was looking at some trivia on this and he actually did not see uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey before filming Solaris, even though they're often compared. And when he did see it, he criticized it for being sterile. (laughs) Oh yeah,
2: all like all Kubrick movies are sterile, right? That you know you can operate in those films.
1: One thing I I think is interesting. um, Nick brought up uh, that you know the he read the summary and had a very different experience of the movie than what he thought. I had watched this back in the day before I was looking stuff up online. I really didn't know what the movie was about, Um, and that makes me wonder because you know nowadays, you know I read you know you watch the trailer. And, you know, you, you read uh, summaries, maybe you look to see who's in the cast. And I wonder how much of that actually you know, sets a different uh, you know, not just a different expectation, but like your whole experience of watching the movie whether you're going to enjoy it. Um, and I feel like in most cases, you're probably going to enjoy it less you know, with if you go in with a certain preconception. Um, I think maybe, you know, like you know, watching the trailer and getting this information might be good for kind of deciding which movies not to watch at all. But I think if you go too deep into that, um you you start expecting one thing and you're probably gonna get disappointed if it's not uh what you thought it's gonna be.
0: So along those thoughts, uh I just went to IMDB and I looked up the this the brief description of Solaris and that other movie I mentioned called Event Horizon completely different movies. So Solaris, a psychologist is sent to a station orbiting a distant planet in order to discover what has caused the crew to go insane. Event Horizon, a rescue crew investigates a spaceship that disappeared into a black hole and now has returned with someone or something new on board. Now, if I've read those, I thought I would think that these movies might actually be similar. They are
1: completely different from from those descriptions i would i would have picked Solaris to be the horror version uh over Event Horizon but it's also
2: the kind of the limit of narrative or, or the description of narrative right with with a movie like this which isn't particularly interested in narrative except as a a place to you know kind of rest these speculations on or, or Tarkovsky's speculations or his kind of tone building um And and Event Horizon is a movie that's predicated upon narrative and it's compact, like Event Horizon, I think is like 80 minutes long or something like that. I mean, it's a quick burst of horror. Um,
0: One hour, 36 minutes. Is it? Okay.
2: It's a little longer than I thought. Um, The, this film is just about kind of meditation right? It's about meditating on the circumstances, on these circumstances and on the potential these circumstances have. And a lot of these potentialities aren't realized, right? He, he can't start a, a life with Hari. Um, we're not entirely sure if he can, uh, advances career or anything like that, um, you know, event horizon, all the potentialities are triggered. They all become actualities. They all become action. Something happens in the movie. Things blow up. Um, you know, there's there's uh, a dramatic lines and whatever. Um, but th- this idea of kind of the mystical experience is um, a reflection on the the potential for being in these different circumstances, the potential for experiencing these different things. Um, And the action doesn't happen. I mean, meditation or the mystical tradition is often thought of in terms of stillness or lack of moving, or even if you listen to sounds when you meditate, right? They're kind of cyclical sounds. They're not like symphonies, which progress towards an end or to a synthesis. Um, And so the... The, this film, I think, is much more interested in um, observing these people kind of reflecting or meditating on a circumstance, responding to that circumstance and their ability to, to survive it for that circumstance to destroy them. But I don't think it is um, for the, the circumstance to, you know, I don't know, Become something or, or drive them somewhere or, or change the world. Um, I'm not really sure. I'm kind of uh, kind of rambling at the end there. But you know that, that's why I think that kind of the mystical tradition is is really important to this film.
0: Well, Doug, it was great to have you back in the crew. Um, I hope you, hopefully you can join us again in, in the near future. Tom, congratulations for taking this one down. Uh, it seems like you knew more details on this than any of us. And we were not, we were, we lost before we even got on, uh, Doug, thanks again for joining us today. Yep. No problem. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, come back anytime. Uh, thanks again to our efficient editor, KJ, who masterly crafts these episodes. I'd also like to acknowledge IMDb, which is a great resource for movie information. Check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as our YouTube channel. We're extremely grateful for any positive views, as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. Join us next time when we discuss Tom's recommendation from 1931M. Should be fun. See you then. Ding, ding, ding,
1: ding, ding.